Good morning, everyone. What a privilege to get to be here again and to get to open the Word of God again. And I was praying with my son Levi on the way over, and he prayed for us that this would be a truly spiritual gathering and that our hearts would burn as the Word was opened. And I thought, yes, that is a beautiful prayer that we would be like the Thessalonians that we are reading about in receiving the Word of God as it truly is. So that's where we need to start this morning as we turn together to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is that we would open this Word with fear and trembling, with hands that are shaking a little bit, because we get to hold in our laps the living, breathing Word of God, and because God is speaking He expects for our hearts to be open with humility and to ask Him, Lord, come and transform us again. Come and speak to us again. We are listening and we long to be a people for your own possession. And so uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are continuing in this second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He's been talking to them much about enduring and being steadfast in the midst of persecution. He's been talking to them about the coming day of the Lord where Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, will come to judge the living and the dead. And that there is time now where he is calling all men everywhere to repent and to come and place their trust in him in truth. And he is not come yet in his patience. And Peter writes that his patience concerning his coming is our salvation. It's not even just their salvation, it's our salvation. Because he's giving us opportunity to continue to be sanctified in the truth of the Word of God. It means that he didn't come back before you heard the Word this morning so that you would have time to respond to the Word this morning. He is a gracious and a good king. And so we are now in the third chapter He's transitioning and saying, finally, right? So he's saying finally a little bit how we say finally, like, I need to set my timer while I'm saying this. Um, Like we say, in just my last point, it's the longest point, and you guys are like, woo, all right. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, finally, now for my last thing I want to say, insert the whole last chapter. But he's changing the subject now, shifting from We've been talking about the Lord Jesus' judgment and the coming day of the Lord and what has to happen first and not being like those in the world who do not know God and who take pleasure rather in unrighteousness rather than welcoming the Word of God. We want to be instead established in His truth, expecting His return and living faithfully until He comes. And now he's saying, in light of that, finally, now that we've talked about these truths, now I want to give you specific exhortations in how now should you live. And um, in two weeks, Eric's going to unpack verses 6 through, I don't know, the, most of the chapter for us. Today, we're only covering verses 1 through 5 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So last week, we talked about standing firm with good hope through grace. This week, we're talking about prayer for steadfastness and gospel advance. So if you take notes, you title things, we're talking about prayer for steadfastness and gospel advance. If you're physically able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. 
And again, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the, the heart of our text, where we are headed as we unpack this together, is that opposition to the gospel and to Christ's people is real. And so we must pray fervently for gospel advance and remain steadfast by God's grace. So because this opposition is real, we must respond by praying fervently and remaining steadfast and obedient to the things that we have learned and received from his word. So I'm going to pray and then we are going to walk through four different observations from this text and it's bearing that it has on us. And I just invite you to pray with me. Sometimes you might hear me pray and think I'm praying and you're just receiving it. But I really want us to join our hearts together and to pray because this word from the Lord is coming so specifically into our need as a church. And so would you pray with me and ask the Lord that he would actually use this morning, not just to give us conviction that's gone by the time we go to bed, but to produce in us something that lasts, uh, of a greater faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, of a greater witness as a church, of a greater demonstration of the gospel and his power in Brattleboro and beyond because of what he does in your heart this morning. Let's pray for that. Father, you were so gracious. You didn't have to get us out of bed this morning. You didn't have to draw us to yourself. Didn't have to give us this word. But you did because you love us and you are committed to conforming us to the image of your son. You're more committed to it than we are. You are so faithful to us. So we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts. Lord, use a a plow to open our hearts to receive the word of God. We want to be humble. We want to be filled with faith. We want to listen with thirsty soil. And God, we pray that you would bear in us by your spirit fruit in keeping with repentance and real faith. Change us, Father. Help us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the first observations, you know, we, a lot of times we start with a problem, a problem that they had in their day that overlaps with the problem that we have in our day so that it kind of gives us focus of how is the word of God meeting us in the midst of our need where we are. And so the first observation is that we have this reality of opposition, There is in your life the reality of opposition and part of the devil's strategy is to go unnoticed so that we forget that there's 
actual supernatural satanic and demonic opposition to you and your life. And so we see this in his mentions of the Lord guarding us against the evil one or praying that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men because not all have faith. So the first thing that I want you to be reminded of this morning is that you have a real supernatural enemy of your soul. He hates you. He hates your family. He hates this church. He hates the gospel. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ and anybody who associates with him. And he has thousands of demonic forces at his disposal to attack you, to tempt you, to deceive you. He's actively right now trying to keep the word of God from being sown into your heart. Now, the devil has always, from the very beginning, sought to get God's people to question God. So in any moment in your life, you feel like you're questioning God, you're questioning his authority, you're questioning his goodness. That's the enemy sowing that into your heart, trying to tempt you away from, has God really said? God's holding that on you. And he does this at every turn, just like he has from the beginning. He has opposed the promised seed of the woman who God said would crush him. Now, this is good news. And we are talking about the enemy on this side of the cross, and he has been crushed. Amen? The book of Colossians, Paul says, God has triumphed over the enemy through Christ at the cross and has put him to open shame. He paraded him through the streets as a captive. The devil has been conquered. And yet, in a mystery, he's given a leash that is so much longer than you and I would give him where he is allowed to rule in this world, where all human beings are born as his children and right now are being held captive by him to do his will, Paul writes to Timothy. Such were you. But that's the state of everyone that you see is that there is actual demonic force at work where it's not just... I don't understand how they don't see this. I don't understand how they get this. I don't understand how they could act like this or believe these things or do these things when they are being blinded by the evil one. And the God of this world has held them captive to do his will, and he works at every turn to prevent you from doing anything about it, from doing anything about your own sanctification and your own growth, and from you being a witness to the only thing that will free his captives from their slavery and win them to the living God. So, we need to be mindful. We've got two tendencies. One is because Jesus reigns and because he has overcome and conquered, you might be tempted to completely ignore the devil and the demonic and spiritual warfare. It's kind of freaky to think about or you think it belongs with like horror movies and like some people who go to the other tendency, the other ditch, who are just looking for demons under every corner and they blame everything on the devil. That was actually their responsibility. Y'all see that? I was like, oh, the devil made me sleep in again. Like, no, bro, that was you. That was you that slept in. So we have these two tendencies, right? There's either we're going on a witch hunt and we're looking for the demonic everywhere so that we can try to feel good about demonstrating some power over it. And we come back like the disciples being like, whew, even the demons were subject to us. And Jesus is saying, you're rejoicing in the wrong thing. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But don't go to the other ditch where you're, 
you're so living as if we're not living in the midst of a war. That you put your guard down and what we have is a sleeping church. An affluent church. A comfortable church. That is all cruise ship and no battleship. And is just navigating life thinking about my problems, my comfort, my provision. And we end up being distracted from the mission of God. Now, the devil, just like God has appointed to use his children to accomplish his will in the world, the devil does the same thing. He is using his children to accomplish his work in the world. So I'm not spending a long time here because we already did in chapter 2 talking about the spirit of the Antichrist in the world and the false teachers and false prophets that have gone out into the world. And there are in this book, a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, those who welcome the truth and so have been saved because they love the truth and they grow to love the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And there's those who may claim to love the Lord Jesus, but when it comes to actually receiving him as he is in his word, they take pleasure instead in unrighteousness. And so they, they form a God in their own image and they may still go to church, may still do all the things that look right on the outside, but at the end of the day, they take pleasure rather in unrighteousness and in their own pleasures. And they've yet to come to a true saving knowledge of God. And so Paul is saying, brothers, pray for us that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, just as a side note, I think that there are probably some of us in the room that would be almost self-conscious or feel like you weren't being spiritual or godly to actually call people wicked or evil. But this is how Paul is praying. There are people in the world who are intolerable and morally corrupt, and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul has learned to talk about them like he says in Philippians where I tell you now even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He can talk about them and call a spade a spade and say, these are wicked and evil men. These men, these ladies that are constantly advocating for issues and causes and messages that are contrary to the law of God and to the gospel of Christ, they are wicked and evil and they are laying obstacles in the way of the gospel. Pray that they be removed, that the Lord would hinder their work. And Paul knows how to talk about them, as we'll see very clearly in a moment, in a way that longs for them, even them, to experience the kindness and the mercy of God and to be rescued by the gospel of Christ. And so this is where we see an overlap between Paul and them and us, that there is this opposition to the gospel for Paul, it looked like imprisonments and beatings and getting stoned. He says five times, like he got 39 lashes where 40 could kill a man. And then as he writes to the Thessalonians, the gospel came to them in the midst of much affliction and hardship and suffering. In the book of Acts, you see that there are people, there are Jews from Thessalonica that actually travel to different towns to cause problems for the gospel being proclaimed in other surrounding cities. And, and these are Jews that are from Thessalonica. So the Thessalonians had people in their town that would actually travel to other cities to keep the gospel from going forward. So they knew what Paul was talking about, and we know what he's talking about. Because 
we no longer live in a Judeo-Christian world, but rather in a, a kind of neo-pagan one. And so Christianity has fallen out of favor in the public sphere, and it could be the best thing that ever happened to us. Because now instead of coasting, you can actually experience what the Word of God talks about and being hated and misunderstood and actually going to Jesus outside the gate and bearing His reproach and actually learning to treasure the gospel above your own life. And that's the second thing that we see with this text with the Apostle Paul. First you have the reality of opposition, but now you have the priority of the gospel. This is so powerful. Look at Paul's prayer. He says, pray for us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I say pray for us, it's usually followed by a prayer for me. <laughs> right? Pray for me. Things are kind of tight. Need some provision. Pray for me. Need this job. Pray for me. My kids fill in the blank. Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So as he's praying for himself, what he's really praying for is, I'm a messenger of the gospel and I want the gospel to go forward. So pray for us to be delivered from the hands of wicked and evil men so that the gospel can go forward. So the gospel has priority in Paul's desires. The only reason why he asks for prayer for himself is for the gospel's sake. This mission was Paul's primary concern and his driving passion, and you see it all throughout his writings, which we have to be reminded are inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us for our instruction. So look at the language from Romans 9 and 10. So this is Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, and then chapter 10, verse 1. This is Paul talking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? What's the source of this burden and this anguish, this agony that Paul feels all the time? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews who are far from Christ. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I was talking to LeBlanc about this before the gathering. I've, I've walked with Jesus for almost 35 years now. I, I don't feel this way about very many people. Where I would say, I, I wish to God that I could take their hell so that they could get Jesus. You might do that for your kids. Maybe for some of you. But for you to feel that way about garden variety lost people that you run into in town and say, I would give up my salvation just so that you can know him. That's aspirational, loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is where I think God really wants to do a work in our hearts. Because I don't think as a church we feel this way. I think eight years in, as I was thinking about, okay, where, Lord, what are you doing? Where are we going? And, and I feel in different seasons, like maybe we, we plateau and then we grow and, and then we decline or we plateau and then we grow. And so as a church, as we've seen some attrition over the last six months, you've seen people leaving the church for righteous and unrighteous reasons. Lord, what do you want to do? What are you doing? Because he's not done here. I just think like if we got together and this was eight years ago and we were going to say, hey, let's start a church together. And we had this group of people, you know how rowdy we would get and how pumped we would be? Say, like, what, we get to start with this group of people? 
This is almost the number that they had in the upper room when he said, wait for my Holy Spirit. And then they got the Holy Spirit and turned the world upside down. And so what does God want to do through us? I think the biggest things are the things we're talking about in our text this morning. To actually have a burden for the lost like this. To actually have a belief in the power of the gospel like this. And as we'll see in a moment, to be a praying people like this. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's this awesome picture of there are people in Brattleboro who are going to know Jesus who do not know him yet. And we endure everything to get it to him. We value the gospel above our lives. And, and our prayer is, man, may the word of God speed ahead and be glorified. This is awesome language. Paul is praying this prayer and asking them for prayer for the word of the Lord to speed ahead and to be glorified. And this language is that the word of the gospel would have free reign, free course, an unhindered path or road to travel alongside and that it would run fast and win. And so he's praying against people that would lay obstacles in the way of this, that by prayer these things could be removed and the gospel might speed ahead in its Olympic game language. It's the same kind of language that he says, I, I want to win the prize. I want the gospel to run ahead and I want it to be in first place at the peak of the mountain. Paul's desire is that the Lord Jesus the eternal word of God, might reign supreme in the hearts of people and reign everywhere as his gospel word is proclaimed. So this is God's model, that Jesus, the incarnate word of God, reigns as his written word of God is proclaimed and he's believed upon in the world and people submit their lives to Jesus as their king. And the word of the Lord is glorified as it is received in its hearers like the Thessalonians received it. So he says, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be glorified. Don't miss that language. As happened among you. We already read in other letters that they received the word. The word came to them with power and with full conviction. And they received it for what it really was, the word of God. And so they turned from idols to serve the living God. This is what the Word of God can do. And it's what the Word of God is doing everywhere where it's being proclaimed. All throughout the world right now, the Word of the Lord is speeding ahead and it is being glorified as the Lord is using the gospel to accomplish the very purpose for which he came, to save sinners from his own just judgment and to reconcile them to the Father and to give them the gift of his own life in them. So this is happening all over the world. You, we got off the phone with Matt Meyer in Poland or with Ben George in India or with Mana where he's serving. And you can just hear of the word of the Lord speeding ahead and being glorified and honored as people are bowing their knee to King Jesus. And he's bringing people from death 
to life by the power of the gospel. He's turning to those who are hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds into repentant sons and daughters living in the joy of their father. It's just got to get you excited. This is not a message for you to just sit there. One more thing to feel bad about. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is conviction by his Holy Spirit. And so the enemy wants to take this and say, man, I just, I don't share the gospel. The gospel's not speeding ahead and being glorified because of me. And I just, that's just for other people. It's for more mature Christians or it just gives me one more thing to feel down on myself about. And this word comes to you to say, take your eyes off yourself and fix them on the Lord Jesus and his gospel. Look at what he's doing all around the world through the power of the gospel. Don't you want it to happen here? Don't you want it to happen through you? So the word of the Lord speeds ahead and is glorified in your own heart and life. And then through your own heart and life that it would speed ahead and be glorified in all the world as the Lord gives you opportunity turning slaves of sin into slaves of righteousness and to God. Taking those, using the language of Titus, who are foolish and disobedient, led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sound familiar to your world? He says, but... Then the gospel comes in and God regenerates them by his gospel word and raises them to life by his Holy Spirit, who he pours out on them richly as a gift. This is the mercy and the grace of God running wild through our community and through our region until the glory of God covers New England like water covers the sea. And it happens as the gospel takes root in our own hearts and life and the word of Christ dwells in us richly and we proclaim it and it runs and has free reign. So I want to pause and ask us a couple of questions that were piercing to my own heart. And I just want you to know the reason why I feel like I can preach this message with compassion and grace instead of just beating you with it is because it's coming through me first. I feel like our own lack of zeal for the gospel and lack of commitment to prayer together as a church is you following the example that you have in me and sometimes in the other pastors. And the Lord is confronting us with it, with his kindness and asking us questions like this. Do you value the gospel above your own life? I mean, actually, willing to endure suffering, ridicule, hardship at work, willing for your family to suffer, willing to sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ in the world, for the lamb who is slain to receive the reward of his suffering through you. When he says, as happened among you, could he say that about us? Could he say, pray that the word of the Lord may go forth like it's gone forth in you? And would that be a good prayer? Is that what you want for your family and for your community, for them to receive the word of the Lord like you have? Does the gospel have its way in you? Does the word of the Lord have free course in your own heart, glorified there as at the crest of the mountain of your desires? where the word of the Lord is at the pinnacle of your life, glorified in first place. This is a question that arrested my own heart this week as I was prepping for this sermon, so distracted by other things, and then I come here and the Lord's like, boom. 
So here I am trying to prepare a, a message from the living, breathing Word of God for Jesus' people to feed them a meal worth having. And my heart's distracted, looking up other things. Oh, reminded of this to-do list. Oh, this thing on the thing I needed, remember I need to buy. Oh, this other task. Distracted and worried about so many things. While the Word of the Lord sits there as something I need to work through to serve this to you. And it just stopped me in my tracks. Other things get closed, put away. Oh, that we could say with the psalmist, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I just, I want the word of Christ to dwell in me richly like you've called me to. For Christ to actually be my life. So the last thing I'll say before we go on to our next observation. The word of the Lord speeds ahead and is glorified through God's people as the word of the Lord speeds ahead and receives glory in God's people. It's the only way it happens. It will be in direct proportion. As the Lord speeds ahead and has free reign and free course in my own life and is glorified in my own life is the direct, in direct relation to how the word of the Lord will speed ahead and have free course in the world around you because you're the messenger. If it happens, it will be a miracle. And so, this is our third observation. Paul calls us to pray. I want you to see here the power and indispensable role of prayer. So we have the reality of opposition, and then we've got the priority of the gospel, and now the power and indispensable role of prayer. We need to be reminded of what a weapon prayer is against the evil one and against his schemes and how God has ordained to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will in the earth. Now, this is staggering if you actually think about who he is and who you are and how much he does not need us, right? I just think about how wild this is and what a mercy and grace this is that God invites us into asking him to do what he wants to do so that we get to partner with him in the work of doing it. It is a staggering privilege and one that we leave untouched or look at as an obligation or something that we're bad at that we want to get better at, but not this immense privilege and responsibility. S.D. Gordon said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Now, I don't want you to hear that and think that prayer is a mere prelude to the work. But I do appreciate the quote for how it highlights the indispensability. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's experiencing oppositions to the gospel. He's encountering strongholds of unbelief. And his solution to that problem is to ask the Thessalonian church to pray for them. And when the Thessalonian church prays for them, Stuff actually happens. This, this, I know you guys are going to look at me like, wow, I can't believe that you're just now coming to this realization that prayer actually does stuff. But it's just like with everything, we have these two ditches. We either believe like in the power of prayer by itself, but what we're really talking about is the power of God. Prayer has no power. 
It's just us in humility coming to God who has the power and asking him to do what he wants to do. But it has to be true in our lives and in our collective ministry as a church that there are things that we are not seeing because we're not asking. This is what he writes, James writes to, in his letter. You have not because you ask not. And so you walk around frustrated for things. You're praying about maybe lots of things in your personal life. But are there things that we're seeing or not seeing as a church because of the way that we're praying together? Really praying the fervent prayers of righteous people accomplishing much? I was thinking about this idea of the gospel having a free course and I was thinking about prayer being like a, like a crane that would come and remove fallen trees that just actually shows up. Like there's a storm and trees are on the ground and then somebody prays and this crane shows up because of the prayers and not until the prayers and actually comes and removes the trees and gives a free course for the gospel. But it reminded me of this time. I think it was seven or eight years ago now. And I was driving back from Atlanta with the boys. I didn't want to put on snow tires before the trip. It was like in December. I was like, I've, I've got to go like 2,000 plus miles. And I don't want to be going the whole way. So I think I'm going to be good. Now I'm looking at the forecast, but it's New England, so I was stupid. And I make it all the way back to Greenfield or Burneson. I mean, I am close, and I'm like, come on, baby. But there's like this snow front coming in. And all of a sudden, I think it was Burneson, it was white out. And I don't know if you've ever driven in what I'm talking about before, but I mean, windshield wipers going as fast as I can. I cannot see the road. I cannot see guardrails. In many places, there are not guardrails, which is a very scary situation. I've got Levi and Elijah in the back seat. They're like three and one at this point. And I'm like, turn off the Paw Patrol. Stop, I can't. Daddy needs to focus. And I'm like doing this thing, right? And it probably takes us 30 to 45 minutes to make it to the Welcome Center in Vermont. By the grace of God, we didn't run it off the road. I'm going 10 miles an hour, five miles an hour just hoping, and then a car with snow tires going past me, and I'm like, whew, all right, I know the road's over that way, and then they leave me, and I'm just, we're slipping and sliding, and we make it to the Welcome Center, and I call my mom and dad, and I'm like, I need you guys to pray. I'm going to take in, I'm going to go, like, we're going to go use the restroom, I'm going to let the nerves calm down a little bit, I need you to pray, like, I need a miracle to get home. Pray for a snowplow or something. So we pray, come back out, and like, I mean, we got to go home. So I get out, and wouldn't you know it, as we're pulling off on this on-ramp to get back on the 91, there are these two gigantic snowplows with the glorious yellow lights behind them, and I get to trail them the whole way home as they clear a path and scatter salt all the way back, and we made it. That is prayer. That's what Paul is praying for. I I wanted to give you examples of a snowplow or a snowblower because maybe... Every time you clear your driveway from here on out, you'll think, this is what prayer does. This is what God has called me to do. When he says, finally, brothers, there's this snow in the way. It's impassable. These evil and wicked men are laying down trees and falling stuff. And I, I am needing some reinforcements here. I need some help. Would you guys pray for us? Beep, beep, beep. Path cleared. This is so practical. It's so practically helpful, but this is the reason why we don't pray. It's because we feel like when we pray, nothing happens. can't see it. But 
the Word of God is confronting us in this. In other passages, Paul, you can go read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 11. He's talking about, man, we were afflicted. We were despairing of life itself. It was bad. But you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks to God on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So he's saying, we're experiencing affliction in ministry. We're experiencing hardship. We need deliverance. Would you pray for us? And God will receive glory as people thank him for the way that he answered your prayers. But the way that we're going to receive help and deliverance is by you praying. Or in Colossians 4, 2 through 4, if you want to combine our, our need for a greater zeal for the law, a burden for the loss and a passion for the power of the gospel with the role of prayer in these things. Look at Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So don't miss this. Without their prayers, no open door for the gospel and Paul, timid and unable to walk through it. Please pray for us. Boom, gospel doors open and through more prayers, strength and boldness to speak the word of God with clarity. So Paul's not riding on the strength of his apostleship. Like, you guys, all I need is an open door. You can pray for boldness for you. All I need, you just open up a door for me and I got it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I need your prayers. Anybody else feel like that? We talk about sharing the gospel with people. You feel like that? But are we praying for open doors? And are you not seeing the doors because you're not praying for them? I was talking to Kayla about this. It's like she gave me a great example, a practical takeaway for prayer for all of us. And I was like, what about the gospel? You're really wise. That was really good. What about the gospel? She said, I think if you're praying for open doors for the gospel, then you'll start to see them and actually walk through them. As you're praying for people that you know that are far from Christ and you're praying for them regularly and interceding for them, then you're going to start to have faith that God's hearing your prayers or maybe a restored faith as of this morning, God's actually hearing my prayers and he's using these prayers to create doors and to open doors. And so I'd be foolish to not be on the lookout for them. And I'm praying for, for boldness to walk through them. And I'm also praying that when we share the gospel, that people would respond to it. And so we can't do anything until we've prayed. But as we pray, then it leads to a greater faith to walk through those doors and to look for opportunities for Jesus to make himself known as we're faithful in praying and sharing the gospel. So this is my burden for us. I feel like in, in Brattleboro, I think that there are strongholds here. Sins, people dead in their sins, stuck in their addiction, that are completely untouched and undisturbed by the church of Jesus Christ. And it can't be so on our watch. This town should know that there is a God in Brattleboro, and his name is Jesus. And because of the way that we are praying, strongholds are coming down, the gospel is going forth, and we have this aim, this hope that every single person in Brattleboro has a repeated opportunity to respond to the gospel. We can't control their response, but we're praying for opportunities and we're praying for boldness, and then we're being obedient to being the messengers as the roads are cleared, we still have to drive on them. 
I think that we have strongholds and sins that are left undisturbed because sons and daughters of God have forgotten our privilege and the power that is ours because of God pouring out his Holy Spirit on us and giving to us his authority. And I'm guilty of this. I see people that seem like there's clearly some demonic activity going on. And instead of walking up to them, now you've got to be led of the Holy Spirit, but instead of walking up to them and being like, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be free? Or having a conversation that would actually disturb and upset something, or just watch. And the devil's like, I'm not worried about Rivertown being here. They just go about their life. If all I got to do is get them to sign into Instagram or be concerned about their financial troubles or be concerned about something else, and we're fine. You just continue to do whatever else you're doing. I got them. It cannot be so. And so this is where I'm so thankful for the kindness of God and that he would give us this word to correct us and to exhort us. This is a mark that he loves you, Rivertown Church. Like he would speak to the churches in Revelation and say, I love this about you, but I have this against you. This is the way that Jesus talks to his church. And I think he would say to us, I love the way that you care for each other. I love the sense of community and family that you have. I love the desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And the way that you've come to see this is truly the word of God. I love those things about our church too. I'm so blessed by you guys, the way that you serve one another, the way that you care for one another, the way that you show up and have a desire for God's word, the way that you can sit under preaching that's 45 minutes instead of 20 and love it. That is God's grace to you. But I think he would say, I have this against you. You're distracted. There's a spirit of Martha in our church, distracted by so many things. And what it looks like is neglecting a resolve and a consistency in his word and in prayer and with gathering with the saints. Where we can't, we make it through unscathed when we talk about conviction in general. Like, I don't know if we have a desire for the word. And you're like, I've got that. I don't know if we pray. Well, I do pray. I don't know if we gather. Well, I'm like a twice a month guy. But when we talk about a resolve and a consistency, when we think about what Levi prayed for this morning, that we would be a church with a burning heart, set on fire by the word of God, where, where the things of God weren't a chore to us, but a delight, where we say, I'm gathering, because, not just because I need the church, but the church needs me. The church needs me to build it up in love. The church needs me to come and contribute my gifts. I'm not going to miss the prayer meeting because I know that when we pray, God works. And I'm not going to walk in unbelief or in busyness or distraction where everything else is more important to us. We just pencil stuff in. So I would say we have, we have grown to some discipline when it comes to getting in the Word. I'm so thankful for that. I would say that we have some discipline when it comes to prayer, where if somebody says, do you pray, you would be able to say with integrity, yes, I do, as a way of life. I'm so thankful that you're here. And most of you here are here regularly. But if we were to open up our hearts to God and say, Lord, what would you speak to me? Then 
from the vantage point of one of your overseers, I would say, he would say, you're distracted people. The way that your phone works its way into the word, the way that you don't set aside time to actually pray on your knees, the way that our prayer meeting serves like a thermometer of whether or not we actually believe it, and people sometimes come and sometimes don't, is an actual barometer of health. Showing up to gatherings when it fits into your schedule, if you don't have anything better to do, if work doesn't press in, if a recreational activity that you have afterwards isn't more pressing, if the weather's not too beautiful outside. But where's the burn, the burning heart that says, Jesus is my life. He has called me to obey him, to seek him with all my heart, to love him with all my soul and my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. And so that looks like actually loving them consistently with resolve. I long for us to press on into maturity as a church where we're not just praying individually, but we're striving side by side for the sake of the gospel and continuing steadfastly in our prayers to God with each other. And I was talking to Kayla, this practical advice I think was really helpful because she said she would be teaching ladies even in college and would be talking to them about prayer. And I think we all think as we pray on the go, like we're a prayerful people. And so I would say if you set aside time in the morning to pray, but you neglect prayer for the rest of the day, maybe you need to set an alarm to actually remind yourself to be praying throughout the day. But I think probably for most of us, we're like a pray-on-the-go people. I pray while I'm driving. I pray while I'm in the shower. I pray here and there before meals, before I go to bed. But I have neglected, after opening God's Word, to set aside 10, 15 minutes on my face, only praying before the Lord, interceding for people. And I just wonder, what if we did that as a church? What if as a result of this word, you actually left here and said, God, every day I'm going to spend some amount of time in your word, letting it get into me, having you speak to me, and then I'm going to let you speak through me and pray for 10 or 15 minutes a day for my family, for the world around me. What would change? I skipped over a a quote I want to read to you, and I'm I'm wrapping up, probably skipping a whole entire last point. Prayer... This is from Will Dobby. Uh, It's a book I'm reading before my devotional time called From Everlasting to Everlasting, and it is awesome. And this is from his chapter on prayer. Prayer makes things happen. Or in other words, God makes things happen. And prayer is an essential element in how God chooses to do so. God folds our time-bound prayers into his foreordained will in a way that is over our conceptual horizon but is nonetheless real. That's a powerful word, saying, look, God has established beforehand what he's going to do, and he's not going to do it without you in a real way. He's not asking you to understand. He's inviting you in. And so I'm just going to mention this last point to you, and you can go study it on your own. But this fourth observation is God's faithfulness and our steadfastness. They go together. Thankfully, Paul writes to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. He is so faithful. He will guard you against the evil one. In the midst of all the enemy's attacks to use your trials of your life to tempt you to prayerlessness or the busyness of your life to distract you from prayer or the frustrations and the trials of your life to make you angry and bitter at God. God is faithful. He will guard you. He will 
continue the work that he started in you. And Paul prays here, God, direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May he make a straight path before you and not let you wander from those things. We've talked about the love of God, that we have to sink our roots down deep into the love of God. I think we have a picture of trees that are falling. I'm, I'm closing down with this. But when Paul's praying that we would be steadfast, like the way that he said, be steadfast in prayer to the Colossian church, or to be steadfast in this burden for the lost or the sharing of the gospel, it's Jesus' own steadfastness that he's praying that our hearts would be directed to. So it's a miracle. You can't produce a steadfastness in you. Jesus was steadfast all the way to the cross where he humbled himself in obedience to the Father all the way to the point of death. And so now we are called, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lay aside every entanglement and sin that trips you up. The same kind of language of these obstacles. Clear the obstacles out of your own life. Give the word of the Lord free course in your own heart and life by putting away distractions, by putting away busyness, by putting away sin that keeps you from the word of the Lord being glorified at the top of your desires and at the pinnacle of your life. And then prove that out in obedience where he says, I am confident that you're going to do all that we command you to do. He's confident about the Thessalonian church, that they're going to obey as they hear the word of God, as you hear the word of God this morning, where he says, I know that from, from preaching this word that you're going to go forth and you're going to cultivate a greater burden for the lost and a greater faith in the power of the gospel and you're going to cultivate a greater steadfastness in prayer. I'm confident about you in these things because the spirit of God is at work in you. And I think the same thing about this church. But if it is true in us, it's because God is faithful. And he's the one who directs our hearts to the love of God so that we rest in his love. We rest in his love demonstrated for us at the cross and the gospel. And that he would produce Jesus' own steadfastness in us. So if you're taking notes, write down Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Go study it. Go look at Jesus' own steadfastness for you. And pray that he would produce the same in us. Jesus' steadfastness secured our salvation. And as he imparts his steadfastness to us, that will be what brings us home. And so let's, let's resolve, as we've talked in this letter, about being a church where we pray, may God fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith by his power. It's his power, but it's your resolve, church, your resolve for good that he is going to strengthen. And so just like the water hardened up under Peter's foot as he stepped out of the boat, we have to step out and say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that with the church. I'm going to do 10 or 15 minutes a day in prayer so that I can be steadfast in this because I know that God has somehow for some crazy reason ordained that he would use my prayers for the advance of his gospel in the world. And so I'm going to be more diligent in this. And then I'm going to show up at prayer night. Oh, Lord, you don't know how it would encourage your pastor's heart if we had a praying church. That's what Jesus has called us to be together. And so what if we were a church that just said, if he said it, I'm going to do it. He said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. He said, don't neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. I don't want to be the some that have the habit. And so I'm just going to do it. What if we did that? What would change? 
The answer to that is I have no idea, but I think it would be awesome. I, I think that that is his design and heart for us is that we would come together. And just if you had two takeaways, I'm going to pray more every day, have a set goal. I'm, you know what? Good for you, 15 minutes. I'm going to be five minutes. Wonderful. Do something. Get on your knees. Pray aloud to your heavenly Father who sees you praying in secret. He will reward you and he will use you. What a powerful promise. So if we just prayed more every day, prayed for these things, go re-listen this message, pray for more of a cultivation of this heart for the loss and faith and the power of the gospel. And you set aside time to pray each day and show up at prayer night, turn Brattleboro upside down. But he's not going to do it until we do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we want to be like a tree firmly rooted in your word. There are many that are, that are fallen all around us through the storms and the trials of this life, not steadfast, not standing firm. But Father, we want to be rooted in your word. Lord, we want to be used of you as vessels available for our master's use, actually surrendered to you, to your life in us. Lord, as you conform us to the image of Jesus, would you please conform us to the image of you as our high priest? You are right now, in this very moment, interceding for your people. You're praying for us right now, and you call us to join you. Lord, would you make us a prayerful people? Stir it in our hearts. Convict us, change us, and use us for the advance of the gospel in the world in our own steadfastness in honoring you. May the word of the Lord speed ahead and be glorified in our own hearts and lives and in everywhere where you give us opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.